out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, and I'll be with you for the next 60 minutes. As you know, we love our indie pop. This week is going to be the turn of the head of David, because I spoke to vocalist Stephen R. Burroughs recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, and after quite a long chat to begin with, which I've edited out and thrown away, we were talking about the um, early musical influences, including glam and Gary Glitter, and the problem of liking Gary Glitter. And this was Stephen's response. Stephen, it's over to you. Glitter uh, conundrum, you see, because you can't deny that rock and roll part two and, and all that that era stuff that he came out with was, I think, it's fantastic. But what he's what he's become, that's something a little bit um, less attractive, of course. But no, I, I think that, that era, some fantastic stuff came out in that early seventies. Yes, I'm with you. I'm with you. It changes changes one. That was one of the first albums I I bought as well. Yeah, and absolutely, and I, I must admit, I do feel a bit sorry for the Glitter Band because they must have thought, "Oh my God, we should be cashing in here," you know, because you know we, you know, we were, you know, that was just anthems. I mean, they were just amazing songs and they amazing were. rhythms, and you know, you couldn't help but enjoy it as a ten-year-old and listen to the sweet and stuff like that. Blockbuster, blockbuster, fantastic, just, fantastic, which was just awesome. So there you go. But then that means. Uh, having vaguely given your age away, you were you obviously conscious more than just conscious of the late sixties. Whereas I was probably listening to Radio mm. Two with my mum and Jimmy Young and What's the Recipe Today, Jimmy? You mm. must have been aware of the more the musical scene. Whereas I was listening to the Carpenters, who I still love, by the way. Well, I was doing all that as well, David. <laughs> I had all the Jimmy Young and the Carpenters. Um, Karen Carpenter, one of the most sublime <laughs> vocalists. I think ever absolutely beautiful voice. I like the Carpenters, um, but yeah, absolutely. My my musical uh, dawning was more the mid sixties when I was I'm that you were you were being born actually. Yes. So I remember the Birds and all, all around that era, and um, and of course, older sister, the Beatles. Beatles make me ill actually now as a result. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I just relate that to. I, I don't know something about the Beatles that I don't know. It just kind of uh, makes me a, a little bit uh, uneasy. Oh, right. Not that I don't get on with my sister, you understand, but it's ju- it's just that memory. But stuff like the the birds and Tiny Tim, all these kind of things, yeah, very very fresh in my mind. Yes, all, almost to the point of where I was. When I heard them, and I, I just that's when I started to really ingest music when I was really young, yes. very young. But, mm. but obviously, you were, yeah. So, were you begin, becoming aware of, of that kind of the, the, the early years of Black Sabbath and the status quo? And, um, well, of, or just course. A, yeah. of course, absolutely. Well, I'm from the black country, yes. of course, and it really is. I know it's a cliche. But that metal scene, uh, th- these bands, Black Sabbath, particularly Led Zeppelin, later on Judas Priest, they're all in your bloodstream. You can't get you can't get through through school without getting into these bands. So absolutely, Black Sabbath, yes. huge huge uh, impact when I heard Black Sabbath first. Yeah, because heard anything like it. Well, I can imagine. I mean, you know, and also they were phenomenal riffs as well, weren't they? They were just even to this day we still listen to those kind of, kind of like they've been drilled out of granite, really. Haven't they? Mm, so, absolutely. So it was quite something special. And I've always loved, you know, I have to say my rock documentaries, and there's a great one on the early Black Sabbath album where I think they'd been playing it for years live and just went into the studio and sort of laid it out, laid it. Yeah. Down, I think that's the term, isn't it? In a, in an afternoon or or day, and everyone was like, you know, because it was that kind of like, well, we can do this with our eyes closed, and they probably did. This 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 that is exactly the approach. If we're talking head of David, that we had, you see, that was the um, more the iron foundry approach that we had, and I think I think I can claim it 
still that we've got the record for the fastest peel session ever. Ah, I believe did... we have. I believe so. The first one that we did, which part of it, I think half of half of, no, all that session, I think, became half of the, the first head of David LP. And that was, at the time, certainly the fastest head of David session. Right. Blimey. Um, so, well, so, well, so was this the nineteen eighty six seven session? You because you, you did two. The first one. You did two with him, didn't you? And was this with the we famous did. Dale Griffith? It was with Dale Griffin. Yeah, that was a that was an, a, a huge thrill because obviously Sharp, the drummer, myself, very much aware that Dale Griffin was the the drummer for Mott the Hoople. Mm. We were both fans, and to meet. Dale Griffin, even though even though Dale Griffin almost got his nose broken by Paul Smith, because blast first Paul Smith, because he he ripped uh, some headphones off me when we were, we were recording. He was an angry bugger, and he ripped the headphones off me uh, in anger. And I think Paul Paul pretty much went for him, and he was gonna he was gonna he was gonna deck him because he was a little bit uh, rude, shall we say? Right. But fantastic to meet these people and yes. to play and to do the recordings at uh, Maida Vale. Unbelievable. Fantastic I would I would imagine studio. that was quite a different experience to um, a lot of the studios you'd been working in and, and rehearsal oh, my spaces. Goodness. My goodness. I've never been in a studio like that. I'm no muso. I'm definitely I'm anti-muso, but that was something else. It really was. It was like... It was like an auditorium because it was built for orchestras, of course, and he's still used for orchestras and gigs. Yes. It's, uh, it's enormous, fantastic. Amazing. Because with my interest in and slightly sort of um, shallow, I don't know, it's not shallow, but, you know, I've, I'm sort of simplistic, that's the better word, of kind of indie pop. I know you actually you, you don't really come into the world of indie pop, do you? But but it's because it's kind of 83 to 87 was indie pop. But you... And but there was a lot of indie bands and independent labels and all that kind of malarkey going on. But you came on the scene in in eighty six, and and so you must have been. So what what were you doing during the early part of the eighties? If you were you yeah. in other bands? Oh, always in bands. Oh, been in bands since I was about fourteen, fourteen, fifteen. Usually with, actually, always with Eric, who was the head of David Guitarist, because we went to school together. We were always big, big friends. And yeah, we, we prior to Head of David, Eric and myself were a duo called Comicide, and we were doing industrial music. Now we're talking about original industrial music from the times of the late seventies, early eighties, of Throbbing Gristle, Boyd Rice, Cabaret Voltaire, etc. All these kind of bands, proper industrial music, and that's what we were doing. And then it suddenly just merged, and then we had this this wake up. We heard the Swans and Birthday Party, and that—that that was the catalyst for Head of David. And we thought, let's let's put everything that we've ever listened to into the Mangler. Sharp came along on drums, and he had got exactly the same mindset. Fantastic meeting of minds that was, and we didn't care. We really did not care what it was that was the influence. Genuinely. The Beach Boys, can you can you believe that? The Beach Boys, Prince, um, yes. Black Sabbath, Throbbing Gristle, you name it. If we listened to it and we, we heard something in a song that we thought that we could, well, we, we'll use that little trick, um, then we'd use it. No qualms at all. No qualms about yes. doing that at all. Well, I guess most most um, art is kind of slightly sort of. Well, I suppose it's plagiarised and then given a twist, isn't it? And then repackaged. Or, it so it's it's yes. There's only so much you can sort of invent, really, and it all goes back to something quite basic. I was going to say the Beatles, but after your first comment, I shouldn't really, should I? But um, yeah. you know, they they to were sort of that, <laughs> to, to qualify that. I do I do like the White Album. I think I think that that is good. I do like that, but there's something about the Beatles. But yes, you're absolutely right. Everything else is just. Uh, a slight plagiarised evolution, shall we say, from from those early days. Yes, absolutely. So look, when you were so in the eighties, you know, there was a lot of unemployment. We were all sort of um, sort of 
floundering around really sort of unemployed a lot of the time and a lot of bands I've interviewed were were definitely unemployed and that was kind of possibly the reason mm. for being you know thinking well I might as well just be in a band rather than just being on the dole well they were on the dole but playing music mm. as well which gave them some sort of feeling of um purpose on this planet because there was the job seekers allowance and the enterprise allowance yeah. so they were great <laughs> schemes that dear old um thatch had sort of introduced to our um no. world hadn't you to sort of get the figures looking a little bit more you know of course. lower the book. Yeah. but the good thing is it gave people especially the enterprise allowance i think that's the one where a, a year of being self-employed in whatever you wanted to put down as long as you had a thousand pound in the bank account which i always thought was a bit strange really because i'm not sure how you'd have got the thousand pound but i don't think anyone was asking too much on that question but so did you were you also in that world of kind of indie I was going to say debauched rock and roll because there probably wasn't enough money to get that debauched, was it, if you're unemployed? No, we, we weren't. None of us were unemployed, actually. Not one of us. Remarkably, living in the black country in the 80s, and we weren't unemployed. I was, at, at the time, I was working for the DHSS. Excellent. Um, <laughs> and, and that was in, in Dudley. Um, uh, I, I wasn't full-time. It was just a casual post, and every... I'd work for a couple of months and then they'd have, they'd have to lay me off for a week or two and then they'd re-employ me. Um, they don't do that now. Uh, well, does the DSS still exist? I'm not sure, but whatever whatever it was, and I kept getting employed and <laughs> laid off for a couple of weeks. Eric was a graphic design um, shop, did various things. So none of us were actually unemployed, but the area itself was hugely hit by unemployment and the old Thatcher years of course I mean particularly myself I'm very much into the anarcho scene crass conflict etc um, so that was a big that was also a big foundation for Head of David actually that scene was as well the animal rights thing so we, we came from you know a lot of different angles I guess as I said it could be it could be one week it could be crass next week it could be Prince but either way we'd use whatever came along but yes that that whole era that was head of David actually saved me from from a complete bleak decade because things really changed once head of David got signed to blast first yes. that really alleviated the the spike, the very sharp spike of what was happening in in Britain in the early 80s. Yeah, but I could imagine why, I can see why there were so many indie, good indie bands, because I think if, if one had sort of managed to sort of cobble together something like, a, you know, there's a creative outlet, isn't it, which mm. is kind of almost... You know, a beautiful, it is a beautiful thing to create something, you know, whether it's a painting poem or a record, you know, it is quite unbelievable because not everybody does it. And so to create a sound and have an audience and have that adrenaline does give you a bit more purpose than just thinking, oh, it's another day, what shall I do? Rather than having that urgency of needing to get up and, and even though you might feel a bit hassled with commitment and then getting in a van and driving across the country to play a gig, at least there was a feeling of you were moving somewhere. Mm -hmm. From A to B, which was good. So how long did it take? Because I don't, you know, a lot of interviews and people like Fast Eddie from Motorhead, you know, they were quite a few years before they thought what they were doing is worthwhile. And they were just about to break up and said, let's give it another, let's give it another shot and see if anybody cares about it. And then yeah. it's like, oh, the sound is starting to, it, it, we've created a sound because it didn't come easily and naturally that made them Motorhead, so to speak. Um, so did it take a while for... Yes, the head of David to to sort of start to think. Actually, this is this is better than just the you know the norm, so to speak. No, it didn't because that that was certainly the the direction. We work was something where we had to we had to work to for money to buy albums. That's that's how we did it to live from day to day. So that's why we worked. Ultimately, we wanted to be in the band. Fortunately, this is ahead of David took off very quickly, very quickly. We hadn't been formed that long i was a um a big sonic youth fan from very early days before before they became the the juggernauts that they did become yes um and i i was really into confusionist sex kill your idols you know before before they got known really known in europe and yes. the uk was it sister was was that the one was that still when no, they were was a blast first one that was much later right fantastic album though great album 
But when Blast First released Bad Moon Rise in their first album on Blast First, I bought the, immediately bought that album. And on that day, I saw the, the address on the back for Blast First. And so, being the opportunist, I slipped a, I slipped a cassette, a demo tape, into an envelope and sent it off to Blast First. Remarkably, a couple of days, a few days later, Paul Smith rang me up. He said, you're the first band ever to send me a demo tape. He quite liked the demo tape. He said, but he wanted to come and see us play just to make sure we weren't a bad Metallica covers band. His words. And I said, certainly. Fortunately, we'd got a gig coming up about a week later at the courthouse in Dudley. Um, it wasn't a very nice night weather-wise, and we, we, we didn't think he, he turned up. And so we played a typical cantankerous 15-minute set. Paul walked in just as the drum kit got trashed, basically, kicked over the, the stage. And he came up to us after. He said, well, I still haven't heard you. I still haven't seen you live. He said, I saw the drum kit fly, but I, I, I didn't hear a note of what you played. Fortunately, uh, a couple of weeks later, we got a gig at the uh, legendary Mermaid in Birmingham. You familiar with the Mermaid? No, that was the no, the Princess that Charlotte. Was the, that was the... Oh, it's fun. Look up the history of the Mermaid in Birmingham. That's where Napalm Death, they played virtually every week. Virtually every yes. week, Napalm Death. And all the anarcho bands used to play there. But we were playing, on a, I think it was on a Sunday night. It was a disgustingly bad night weather-wise. Um, but Paul did turn up to that one, and he did, well, he turned up to the Dudley one, but he caught us uh, live that night, the whole set. He really liked it, and on that night, in a back room at the Mermaid in Birmingham, we signed for Blast First. Wow, because that was... I know, and it was really quick, and that is when, that's when it all started to snowball. Yeah. Now, this is, this, it was all... Beautiful synchronicity, beautiful synchronicity, because, as I said, I was working for the DSS, and I, I went to work the next day. I was high as a kite because, because of signing to Blast First, and it was then that I was actually told by, by the manager that, look, you... you all you've got to do is turn up for the interview and you've got a full-time job here. So the casual basis on which I was going to be, I'd always worked, was going to change and I could have been full-time. He said, all you've got to do is turn up for the interview. He said, you're fine. And I said, I don't want it. He couldn't believe it because I, I thought, now that's it. I'm in a band now. I'm, I'm in a band. <laughs> <laughs> and um, And that was it. And... Everything completely changed from that moment. Yes, With and did it? I guess unbelievable. You, I mean, you're in your twenties, so I, I'm guessing that actually you just thought this is it—the dream has come true. It felt like that. It really did because from the courthouse and the mermaid, literally, literally, a few weeks later, we made our London debut, supporting Sonic Youth. Now. It was all a bit mind-blowing, and, and it continued to get more and more mind-blowing as, as the months progressed. Um, so there I was. A few weeks earlier, we were playing the courthouse in Dudley. Here I was, backstage, talking to Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon <laughs> in a dressing room in London, playing a gig with, with, with Sonic Youth. Yes. It, it, it just, just did not add up at all. It was just... To me, it was just fantasy. A couple of weeks later, we played London again, and we were supporting Nick Cave and the Bat Seeds at the Town and Country. That, that was even more surreal, and I mean surreal. I was sitting backstage talking to Mick Harvey. I thought, this is Mick Harvey. All I could think when he was talking to me, because he was talking as a normal person, lovely character, really nice man. And you think, 
what's going on? Is this real? Is this real? And all the people, all the bands that I was a huge fan of, these were people who, who would suddenly, almost overnight, become peers. Uh, yes. But but we all remained fans. We we were never we never felt like we were on the same level as those bands. Never. They, these were the those were the those were the uh, the aspirational bands for us. They 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 weren't our fellow uh, our fellow bands. We weren't peers. But we we just then that, that's just the way things started to to unfold for the for the next few years. Yes. Me meeting so many people, going so many places. And what was and what was Paul Smith like? Because he's one of those characters that when they have these kind of rock and pop documentaries and indie documentaries, Blast First were quite major. I remember sort of that that you know it was one of those labels, a bit like Four AD, that was very cool, wasn't it? Very cool indeed. And and but but there's very little chat about Paul Smith actually. No, Paul. he doesn't really appear, and no one seems to sort of. And Blast First, you know, everyone talked about Rough Trade and Creation, and and a few others like Fifty Third and Third in America, in Scotland, but not um, the Pink Label. That was tiny though. Um, but not Osea Records. Um, yeah, but Blast First doesn't get mentioned. So does I mean, what was what was he like as a person? Paul doesn't um, tout that publicity for himself. He's very reluctant to be photographed. As a manager, as a label, wow, he was real. He was for real. He was he was fantastic in in terms of defending his bands. He was a incredible wind up merchant. He used to wind us up a lot, um, but he was just brilliant at getting the job done. If he said, uh, "We'll do an album." you knew you were going to do an album. If he said, we'll do an American tour, you knew you were going to be doing that American tour. So he was very reassuring. He was a, he was a real, almost like a, so he's not much older than, than myself, only about three or four years older than myself. He really did take on that almost fatherly figure to the band because you just felt safe having him there. Yeah. Very impressive character. Yeah, and he, so was this the Blast First years? Were they his kind of, you know, the his moment? Because you know, especially in the creative industries, to you know, it's a bit mm. of a dirty word, I suppose. But but a lot of people have that kind of like this is this is the moment where everything has lined up. You know, the planets have lined up, and we're sort well, of we've got takeoff, and then suddenly it goes, oh dear, actually, it's it's not going so well. But you do have those kind of moments. I just was the Blast that period for him. Was that his kind of? moment or did he go on and do other amazing things he's still he's still doing things now but it's very much underground he's getting more into book publishing now um but yes that era we he set up the first it's all relevant this he set up the first head of david peel session the one that became half of the first album on the back of that we were heard uh, by Daniel Miller for Mute. The next day, Daniel Miller contacted Paul Smith and said, I want to sign Head of David to Mute on the basis of that, of that, um, that session and the mini album that we'd put out. Uh, Paul, being Paul the businessman, he says, well, you'd have to sign the whole label over. Um, so eventually, that's what Daniel agreed to. So we kind of lost out on that, I guess. But in some ways we didn't, of course. But see, that's how things happen so quickly. And that's what really did uh, put Blast First on another level when it come to attracting bands. Because after that... Big Black, Dinosaur Junior, Butthole Surfers, you name it. He he could bring them in on the on the back of that. Yes. So, yeah, so, as I say, things happened very, very quickly. This was all within a few months, remember, of us actually signing for Blast First in a back room at the Mermaid pub. Yeah. It was, it was difficult to, to actually contain at times. 
I know, it's quite, it was quite extraordinary, because I remember it must have been in the late 80s when the buttholes were still on the Blast First label, and I sort of went to London to see them play, and that, that was under some sort of subway or somewhere. I know, it was some on the edge of some, I don't know, underneath a, a, a motorway or something. It was quite a nice... Bay 63. Pardon? Bay 63. I don't know where it was actually, but it was kind of the late. It was eighty, eighty nine, and I do believe that you know that was when they were on the Blast First label, and mm-hmm. I do believe Paul Smith was there. I'm slightly, yeah, yeah. you know, it he, would have been because it would have been um, around of locust abortion technician around that era. So yes. yes, he would have been there definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I'm sort of, you know, I have kind of memories of one of the most fondest gigs I ever went to, actually. It was just quite a beautiful... It was like it was summertime, and I remember seeing Steve Mack from um, That mm-hmm. Petrol and Motion was also there, and, it, you know, the, the band were just extraordinary. <laughs> they know, were just an amazing band. I, so, I've, got, I've got some stories that I could tell you, but we would really be here forever about <laughs> things that I've done with these bands. All these bands that you talk about, Butthole Surfers, and you, you would just say, this man is mental, who I'm talking to now, but, he, he, you know, they're all true, but I won't go into them because it take up too much time. <laughs> but, yes. Um, yeah, were, 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 were you, are you amazed when you look back, though, that you managed to create, and so those bands create so much incredible music while so, so much mayhem and chaos was happening? That's just the thing. You're, you're pretty much unconscious of what you're doing and I really was unconscious most of the time and I'm not being uh, you know I'm not exaggerating there because you're unconscious in, in so many ways um, but yeah absolutely now you, you said earlier I can't believe I'm alive or something like that I, I really can't believe I'm alive because when I think back I, just, I don't know how I got through it I really don't Yes, and you'd um, also been a little bit older. You weren't eighteen then, so you're a little bit older and been through a few musical moments and life experiences by working, which is, you know, often a good thing as well. So you you obviously also realised the temptation, like the it's like the Garden of Eden, isn't it, of kind of getting into that interesting world that is rock and roll. I don't think you've really got much choice. Um, so we didn't certainly. I mean, what what are you going to say? Uh, would you like to support Sonic Youth in London, or would you would you like to do this or record here and and do that? No, there's no questions. You, you just you just do it. So it's not really a case of. Oh, I'll let you know. It's a case of when. <laughs> yes. we're, we're on our way. So it it is it, it is like a head rush. It really is. The yes. whole thing was, Lenny, and it happened very quickly. And it, I, does you... Leave you, it does leave you um, ultimately um, not depressed, not depressed, um, exhausted, because I, I know I went through periods of, of great exhaustion, mental exhaustion, doing this. It's when you stop. It's when you stop doing it. That's when it all catches up with you, and that, that was the problem. When you stop. <laughs> yes, I would imagine it was a bit tricky. Because, um, yeah, so you obviously, I mean, it is interesting because you were sort of with a lot of the bands who have a, a sort of, I've got, I've got several, well, another theory, which is the, the five-year theory where a lot of bands seem to last five years and, you know, they have 12 months getting together. John Peel would play, you know, a track, you know, the single, then they get the session, then that first album, things are going well. The second album, a bit tricky. Um, and sometimes the third album, possibly not. And if anybody ever toured America, that just destroyed them. Um, so you, you were quite... You just described our career. You just <laughs> described our career. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't appreciate any of that until I started interviewing bands, and they, they had this kind of oh right okay. As a fan, it all just looks fantastic. You buy your NME on a Wednesday and get mm-hmm. terribly excited, and oh, John Peel's played. You always want John Peel to play another a new artist that you can go. My God, I've discovered lucky, mm-hmm. clever me. I've discovered another band. Obviously, you mm-hmm. haven't, but you know it was just fantastic as a fan, you know. But I didn't realize there was, you know, it's like that Hunter S. Thompson quote, isn't there about. I don't know, I'll have to try and find it before the end of the interview, but, you know, he talks about, you know, the whole sort of 
yeah, pimps and prostitutes and halls and uh, yes, it's it's a it's a famous quote about rock and roll, but and he kind of gets it kind of right, and and I can see um, it must be difficult when you're in the band because you probably haven't had time to think. Right, it's going to start, and we'll have a few months to get ready. It's like oh god, it started, and we've got to go now. No, it was like a trap door. It was like a trap door being opened, and you were into the the abyss of of that 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 world. It could, you could go anywhere at any time. Um, I mean, it was to me, it was it was blissful. But at the same time, had I had the ability to to slow down, and step back, I would have handled it much better. But none of us did. None of us did that. We just went into it headlong. I think that's what most bands would typically do. Yes. And somehow, somehow, I'm talking to you today about this. Yes. And it seems fresh, even though <clears throat> at the same time, when I, when I start talking about this, because very rarely do I, 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 I talk about this kind of thing, um, it all sounds, again, typically surreal. I know surreal is an overused term, but that's, that's what it was really like when you look back on it. Yes. So with your first album, you had the, 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 the shit hits the fan. Is that, that was a live album. Then you brought out Dust Bowl. Was that your first proper album? Was that a... No, well, personally, personally, I believe that we should have called it a day after the first mini album, the Dog Breath album. The mini album. Not even with the Peel session on it, just that album, because that is the purest head of David there is. After that, to our credit, we did like to try different things and experiment with things. Um, didn't always work. In hindsight, our most popular album, successful, if that's the word, w- was definitely Dust Bowl. Uh, but I think we'd gone off. Off, off the track then. It was a great, great album to uh, to record with John Fryer, who had done This Mortal Coil and The Cocktails. Again, <laughs> all these, these these bands that we... I'd got a whole room full of their records, and to say I'm sitting in Blackwing Studios recording this this album on an on a anonymous Wednesday afternoon, and this is where Liz Fraser sang, and this is where I'm screaming now. You know, it was again, it was just... It was just out-of-body yes. kind of stuff. But I think we'd lost our way somewhat come the second album. Sharp, drummer Sharp, unfortunately, um, had left by that point due to domestic uh, demands. He'd got a family, so he couldn't really give the time to the band fully. He couldn't tour uh, Europe, for example. He just couldn't up and go like we could. Uh, so that was a shame, and I think a lot of the creative spark left. This is when uh, Justin, who is now Godflesh, Yezu, he was uh, Napalm Death's guitarist at the time, so it seemed logical to us to ask, because we knew Justin, to ask Napalm Death's guitarist to become the drummer for us, <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's how that happened. But, yes. you know, it, it was good, it was good. Justin's a good lad, he's a creative person, and it, it was a good time to actually play in the band, but I, I, I do think we'd lost our way somewhat yes. on that album. Well, it's interesting, because around, I suppose it was a few years late, oh, probably actually only a year later, I went to Ipswich to see Napalm Death, Ex- Extreme Noise Terror, and a third oh. band, could have been Car... Oh, God. Carcass, probably Carcass, yeah. Yeah, probably. It was a three-band, um, yeah, kind of evening, and... Um, Bolt thrower? Would they? No, I don't know. Oh, bolt thrower. I don't know. Actually, I don't know who the third band is, but it, it was definitely the other two. And that was the only time that I managed to meet John Peel, I think. And um, well, not meet him, but I saw him and looked at him and said hi. And he looked a bit confused, so I thought well, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it, was like, it was a very, <laughs> yeah. it was very loud yeah. as well. So it was like it wasn't. You realise it wasn't the time to try and talk. But were you um, obviously at that time hearing a lot of those bands? Like extreme noise terror and napalm death. Were you, were you thinking, blimey, they're they're 
Yes, did that influence you? Because a lot of the indie bands I did, you know, I've interviewed, you know, they were much more jingly jangly, a bit like the mm-hmm. Smiths, June Brides, Go Betweens, all that kind of stuff, or influenced a bit like from Orange Juice and the Birds and the Beatles and all that. Um, and and one thing that finished a lot of those bands were off, apart from the five years and the usual thing, is that actually the musical kind of scene started to change, and you had that dance world in, and suddenly ecstasy took over a lot, and there was like you know the Soup Dragons, the Happy Mondays, guy called Gerald. So there was that dance world and then there was a kind of the grunge world coming in a bit later and then obviously Britpop so each of those kind of times kind of knocks out bands who just think oh god we've got a follow-up album and to be honest the fans have kind of got what they want and the next load of fans want the next thing which is exciting which is fair enough but you know for a band and an artist it must be a pain in the ass really thinking oh great our fans now want us to sort of sound like, the, you know, the Happy Mondays. Whereas obviously you thought, we don't care, this is the head of David, we're making a noise. Um, but at the same time, you did have all those bands like, you know, Steve Albini and, and Black, Big Black and, and Sonic Youth and Butthole. So you did sort of have a scene that you fitted into, and plus you're on Blast First Records. So I just wondered how yeah. you were kind of looking at the kind of musical landscape at that time and thinking, well, we're, we're, we're part of it. Well, from my perspective, the landscape was more like a a levelled minefield, to be perfectly honest. But, yeah, of course, I mean, that we got lump, lumped in with the so-called noise scene, which Big Black, Sonic Youth, all these bands that were consequently on Blast First got labelled as noise bands. It used to drive us potty because we didn't, we didn't actually think that we were noise, believe it or not. We didn't think we were atonal or anything like that we we really did think that we had tunes i mean that's how that's how deranged we were i think uh but i never took any notice of what really was was going on around us the what you've just been describing that 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 bill that you saw in in um in norwich napalm death bowl thrower etc that was an average Saturday night at the Mermaid. That's where the, the grindcore scene in, in the UK really took off. Um, and it was an influence, not necessarily sound-wise, but it was, attitude-wise, it was an influence. Um, yeah. yeah. The uh, Well, we'd gone by the time that the baggy scene had arrived. We, we were in America by that time, and we were on the way out at that point anyway. Yes. That didn't really affect us, didn't really bother us. So did you, were you beginning to feel as, as the 80s was coming to a close and the 90s were happening, did you feel like, the, were you aware that the, the band were going through quite a lot of changes? I just wondered if there was kind of a point where you think, actually, we're, we've almost done now. Definitely. I, I can tell you the exact point. It was in Madison, Wisconsin. I don't know what, I don't know what the date was, but it was... About maybe three weeks into uh, an American tour, our last American tour, and I, I actually heard Eric saying to somebody, he said, "I don't think I can, I don't think I can do this anymore." I said, "I think this is my last tour," and I thought, "I'm with him on that. This is this is this is the end now. This is this is going to be the last one." And that was a really tough tour to do because we got about another two months to do, and. When you're not engaging with what you're doing on stage, it's hard work. Some nights were were really good where you just forgot about that pressure and you could just let go, but other nights it it did get quite heavy. But by the time, a couple of months later, that we got back to New York, I think we all knew that that was the end of it at that point. And what's yeah, the what's the di- so what was the dynamic like? Was the band itself just dysfunctional by then? I, I don't think anybody was really engaging with what we were doing. It, it's, you, you mentioned earlier about America destroying bands, and it really does because you're really thrust together. We got on really well, actually, so that wasn't the problem. We didn't fight, but it was just the rigmarole. And there were times when I thought, I really wish I took that job at the DSS now. <laughs> 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 and just gone for that that stable nine to five life, and but I didn't, and that that's that's fine. But yes, it, it was just a, I think it was just a, an organic death for us. Yeah, we just knew we just knew that that was it. We'd we'd reached the end. 
And had you recorded, or had you were you touring the the Seed State, or was that still to be yeah. made? Mm. You were touring that album. We were touring that album because in America, it was blast first mute over here. Over there, it was blast first mute. Uh, what was the other? What's the other label? Was it Electra? Electra, well remembered. Yep, it was Electra, and it was a very different ball game over there. And so you had people from the record company. It really was Spinal Tap. <laughs> it really was Artie Fuskin, Kick My Ass, I, I, I Fucked Up, all these kind of things. And um, yeah, Excellent. It, it's different. And uh, we couldn't handle that kind of thing. It was, there was too much fuss. We're not fussy people. And it was just, it was just hard work. Yes. I so there were too many different elements coming into it. Plus you had the pressure... You had agents in different areas of, of America, which is a big place. And it was all like, well, why, why do I have to do that for yes. you? Do, why do I have to do that? And, and doing interviews to stations and radio stations, television stations, I think of a clue who we are. Yes, I, I did hear, I, I think it was either a member of Carter, the Unstoppable Sex mm-hmm. Machine, or members of Lush, I can't remember, it was one of those, and they, they were talking about like having to drive two or three hours to have, uh, you know, just to say hi to somebody on the radio, and literally like, well, that's it, you just said hello, we're in the studio, and, and now you Definitely. can get back in the van and go back and drive another two hours back. To, you know, it, was like, it wasn't even an interview, I think it was just to say, hi, we've got Carter. Well, you, you, you do, you do, this is it, I mean, we used to do that, and it was, yeah, you, you didn't quite go that far. It wasn't two or three hours. It was usually in the town or the city that we were actually playing. But the, the actual appearances at the radio station, why, why, why were we there? Were we there? I, can't, I, I don't know. But it was just to say, hello, I'm Stephen, yes. I'm Eric, blah, blah, blah. And it was pointless. But yeah. so that's did what you, you have to do. Yeah. And, and were you sort of at that stage, had you picked up an audience, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a hard following, hardcore following, you know, because obviously uh, coming from, from the UK and you've been mm-hmm. this English band. I mean, the other way around is that I was, you know, if anybody came from New York, you know, I don't know if you were the same, that you'd, you'd instantly think, yes, I'm going to love that band just because they're from New York or they're from Australia. Before you even heard them, you know, it's like, oh, Lydia Lunch, she's amazing. And then you think, I'm not so sure. But anyway, she looks great. So I'm like... <laughs> is it? I'll tell you my Lydia Lunch story in private, okay? But <laughs> not on air. But yes, of course, of course you do. We had. It depends where you were in the. Ironically, in the the industrial Midwest, there was a there was a hardcore following waiting for us there. We did some great shows there. Uh, in other areas, these were little outposts of America. Um, I think us arriving there probably trebled the, the population of some of the, the places we played <laughs> because it, they, they were so small, so out of the way. Yes. Um, so it depended where, where you were. New York, we actually played CBGBs, which was, well, that was another mind-blowing uh, occasion. Couldn't believe I was standing where Tom Verlaine, Joey Ramone, etc., had also stood. It happened to be one of the poorest gigs, the most boring gigs I've ever played, but it doesn't matter. It was actually playing CBGBs. That was the main thing. Um, New York crowds, very cool. They've seen it all. But there was a following for us there, definitely. Chicago, likewise. So all these kind of harder places, there was a following for us. Down south, yeah, not bad, not bad. There's quite a quite a contingent down that way as well. Yes. But largely in between the major conurbations, well, we could have been anybody. Uh, just, I, don't, I don't even know where we were most of the time. It was, it could, could, it was a different planet as far as I'm concerned. Yes. So when, you know, after the album and that tour, did you all sit down and have a we just don't want to do this anymore conversation, or did you just all not turn up to a rehearsal? No, 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 no saying, um, this is it. We just didn't do anything else. Right. We just, did, we just didn't, we didn't contact each other. Um, 
we didn't talk about the band, that was it, gone. My God. That's when I got back because from a very early age, for some reason, I had a real interest in Buddhism and meditation. It was when we got back off that last tour, I thought, now is the time to seize the opportunity to explore that. And that's when I entered uh, the Buddhist world. I, I became full-time Buddhist for the whole 90s. I was living in retreat centres and monasteries. That's, that's, what I, I know, you, that's what I did. Did you change your name? My name? Yes, because often when, you know, I've had some friends who become Buddhists and then they become, they have another name, don't they? they, they yeah, they do. You, you get an ordained name, yeah, if you, if you seek ordination. Right. I was, I was maybe a month or two from, from an ordination and I, I decided I couldn't put my name to everything that that particular movement uh, stood for, uh, so I didn't get ordained. But yes. Did that yeah, sort of save your life then? That that period of being a but, being, you know, living in retreats and. Get... I think so. I think so. It, it didn't so much save it, but it put it into perspective. It really did uh, give it some a greater meaning that that even the band had because you start you're working on the mind with the mind, and it has remarkable <laughs> results. And you from sitting still. On a cushion, you can travel throughout the cosmos. I know that sounds very new age, but you can see life for what it really is. And that was the, that was the life-changing thing about that era. And it was vital that I did that. I, I continued to make music, but it, you know, with no intention of um, actually playing any. That's the project that I, I re resumed recently, FRAG. Uh, I also do Tunnels of R now, and it's it's a very different approach to, obviously, the Blast First days and the Tunnel um, Head of David days. But yes. I continue to explore music at that time. Um, after a day of meditation, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go to my little cloister and uh, <laughs> plug in tapes and stop making noise <laughs> on the night, just, just to completely counter the day's work that I did on the cushion. Yes, but that that was the life that I led, and it was it was fantastic. Well, Again, it was, it was a good good period. Well, absolutely, and it sounds like you know you, you've got quite a good balance there, really. I mean, did it take you know because meditation is quite a lot of stillness and mm. processing. I mean, you'd obviously lived a lot in those five years of being with the mm. band. I mean, there must have been a lot of times when trying to <laughs> try not to think. Oh yes, there was that amazing moment. Um, yeah, I mean, did did that was that just kind of the '90s kind of process in your five years of Head of David? It's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's almost um, almost putting it into a shredder, almost because Buddhism would say, well, it was just a that was just a phase. That was just a temporary moment. It was just a it was just a breath. In your life, that that period was that. That's all it was. It, you know, it's gone now. Everything is impermanent, and you just move on to the next thing. Yes. So that's that's how it really helped me to put it into perspective and get a hold of it. Because I really do think that it's very difficult, regardless of um, the size of of your band, whatever you you may have achieved with your band. It's really difficult to actually acclimatize. Uh, back into normal. It's a bit like being in the forces, I guess, when they say Civvy Street. It's very difficult to to enter the Earth's atmosphere again after, yes. after you've done that. And do you, are you amazed when you sort of looked at people, because, you know, the other person I loved and banned was Motorhead and Lemmy and, mm. and you know, people like that and David Bowie who, who just committed their whole life to music and you thought, mm. out of all the careers, that is possibly one of the hardest ones you've ever had to do. And... And they did it to a fair, you know, to a degree, which was quite extraordinary, you know, because it was just, you know, there was there was not like, you know, I mean, I know Bowie had his kind of period when he was ill, you know, after that heart attack in oh four oh three, so he disappeared until the the you know a couple of albums towards the end, but you know, Lemmy did just keep it going, and and you you thought you know his lifestyle was mm. quite extraordinary. It took him to 69. You must have thought, God, if you'd still been in Head of David, you'd be. 
You'd be a wreck, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I admire any band, and I mean any band, whether it be Boyzone or, or Motorhead, to keep going in this in that game because it is a demanding game. And I understand why bands get into excess, yes. whether it be drugs or drink, because the last thing you want to do is think. Um, I think Bowie was a completely different entity. That man, I've got theories about Bowie. He, 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 I think he really had transcended a lot of the human condition, and I, and I don't mean that in, in a fickle kind of way. I'm a huge Bowie fan. But he knew, he knew there are meditations you can do that can actually help you. Every meditation does, but the specific ones to to uh, achieve a favourable rebirth, put it like that. I believe Bowie went, went through something like that around the time of his death because everything was timed to perfection. Yes, because actually one thing that slightly boggles me is that the photographs of him where he looked like in his last day, he looked so well, actually. It was a kind of um, an odd photograph that appears, you know, like, you know, and it's a bit like nor- normally people who have got terminal illness and are about to die never look quite that sort of well, really. So, yes, it's a strange one. And, you know... Remarkable enough... presence of mind Bowie appeared to have up until the last days. But he, yeah. you know, and he, he even controlled his own death. That's what I mean. He... I think he'd meditated on this a lot. He was very much into 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 Buddhism, certainly Zen, uh, from from the very early days. So he was a man. I think through his art had transcended the the human condition because art is, as you were saying, it's a fantastic thing to to pursue, and it is just another way of transcending that human condition. Yes. And actually, I've got, an, I've got a, it's not a personal story, but there was an amazing story that, because I did an interview with, with Woody Woodmansey, the drummer, and oh, he told, yeah, cool. and, and, and it's quite interesting because the night, yes, they were playing, the band Holy Holy were playing, you know, music of David Bowie, I think the man mm-hmm. who sold the world in New York, and they were on stage and it was David Bowie's birthday. And mm-hmm. so Tony Visconti said, look, let's phone David, you know, when they were playing, you know, on the stage and wish him a happy birthday. And there would been a slight rumour that he might p- appear, but obviously for reasons you'll know, you'll know why he didn't. So they mm-hmm. sort of, they phoned him and they said, hey, David, you know, we're on stage, you know, we're wishing you a happy birthday from Tony Visconti and Woody and the crowd. And, and Bowie said, you know, did they like the new album, Black Star? And, and they, you know, obviously lied and said yes, because <laughs> they'd only just yeah. come out. And um, and then next day, Woody said, you know, he sort of woke up and his phone was just going mad. And, you know, David had died. And it's like, the timing of that is kind of, mm-hmm. for me, it's still like, my God, the de- you know, he's, you know, he was a bit, he was in shock, obviously, because he, A, you know, he's like, God, but we just phoned him the night before to wish him, you know, we haven't really had that much contact because, you know, obviously the band didn't finish well, the Spiders, did they? So, you know, they've, they've been okay, but not amazing. But to sort of wish him a, a happy birthday and then the next day he dies, I think is is kind of amazing. This is, this is all part of the the ever-growing Bowie myth, I believe, because it's almost like he knew. It's almost like he'd booked his death. (laughs) He knew he was going to go anyway. And I think he wouldn't make any any, uh, great drama of it. He would just get on with his life. Of course, he'd say thank you for the happy birthday wishes or all these normal things and just die because I think he knew that it was just... It was just a part of life, and he and he just took it as part of the cycle. I think that's the, just the way that he had lived. I think Black Star is an incredible album. I really, you know, I heard stuff from it long before it was released, and he thought, well, what's going on here? There was something very different. There's a very different mood to it. But I think it's an absolutely flawless album to go out on. Yes. It is an amazing album. But yes, it's tricky. So what would you then say to an 18-year-old self who was kind of starting out in that wonderful world that was rock and roll or life? Uh, I mean, what, you know, because obviously, you know, you've got, 
huge, you know, a huge amount of experience. I just wondered if there was something that you think, you know, if I was to say something, you know, or one thing that I would just, that you've learned, I just wonder what that would be. Well, yeah, I, I, if anybody asked me that, I mean, I would say just, just do it, follow that instinct and sod everything else. I really would. And for better or worse, pursue it because if you can <laughs> regain your balance after that, then it's not going to kill you. Yes. It's, it's killed many, but yeah, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to follow that instinct and that, and that desire to create. So I haven't got a son. I haven't got children. But if they wanted to play in a band, I'd say it, it genuinely would say it, it will be the best and the worst thing you've ever done. But yes. I certainly wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't block anybody <laughs> or put anybody off from playing in a band, just as long as it's not an industrial metal band. <laughs> because industrial metal—that is the only valid case for capital punishment. Industri- I'm joking, of course. Industrial metal—it's um, that turns my stomach. That term. Yeah. I wouldn't encourage. I wouldn't encourage, encourage anybody to do industrial metal. But there you go. A bit like the Beatles for me. <laughs> That's because Ed of David kept getting lumped in as, as industrial metal and industrial rock, which is absolute nonsense. Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> and do and do. I mean, one thing that, that I've often thought. You know, as being a fan, as I probably mentioned a few times. But, you know, the one thing, you know, you don't really want bands to reform, but it would be nice to sort of think, oh, and I hope they still get on OK. Do you do you ever sort of catch up with any of the previous, you know, members and just go? Yeah, we we, we don't meet up as such, but we, we're all friends, definitely, yes. We're all still friends. Yes. Um, we did We did actually reform. Did you know that? So we played in 2009, we played the Supersonic Festival. That's, in, in yes, Germany. I saw that um, clip mm-hmm. actually. And what was that like to uh, do that? That was great to work with the other three again. That was really good. Um, that was something that certainly Eric and myself swore that we would never do ever again, that we would play Head of David. I certainly swore that I'd never play Head of David again. I swore that I'd never play live again for that matter in any capacity um but that we were invited to play it it was meant to be tied in with the uh re-release of our back catalogue that didn't happen so (laughs) the motive behind the the appearance didn't actually happen but it was good it was it was good to do but no wouldn't do it again no but did it give you an opportunity to just have a moment, you know, I mean, sometimes I'm a bit of a sentimentalist and a romantic with a bit of melancholia thrown in. Did it give you a chance to sort of just feel like, oh, actually, it's nice to revisit it and to almost give it a nicer goodbye? Because you didn't the, the first time. So I just wondered if you were a little bit more conscious of that moment. Very conscious of what we were doing, definitely. Um, it was it was on a different scale, actually, from what we'd done before, because Supersonic... I don't know whether you've been to Supersonic, but it's a very good festival. The stage is big. You've got the lighting. It really was like playing Hammersmith Odeon again. And so it was on a different scale. This, you know, a couple of weeks previously, we'd done a warm-up gig at the... Um, was it? It was the Hare and Hounds in, in Birmingham as a warm-up to Supersonic. So that was back to the pubs. That was more what we were used to doing. Yes. Um and that was that was good, but personally, I I I do I do I, I do still now think amazed how they got us all back together to do that. Yes, you know, I really I really am because we went to meet Lisa who who runs uh, Capsule who runs Supersonic one Saturday afternoon, and it's almost like we were hypnotised, and we just we all said yeah yeah we'll do it. And once we'd done it, I think we, we didn't take long to get it back on track. We we pretty much played the tracks, yes, quite reasonably flawlessly. Uh, first take, 
So, you know, these things don't leave your bloodstream too easily. So it was quite easy to do. Um, but it was just good being with the others. From, from my perspective, it was good have, having a laugh with the other three, Dave, Eric and, and Sharp. It was, it was just good fun. Yeah, excellent. Yes, well, and it's good that you feel very, that was it, let's not do that. But you're making music and meditating. I do. The, I do, and, the, I, and I enjoy it. It's a different approach entirely, yeah. But it's interesting because a lot of people, I think, you know, again, you know, from that period that I'm, you know, been doing a lot of these interviews, you know, mm. put away the guitar or the microphone and got on with life. And they've kind of thought, actually, I quite liked it. It did give me a bit of a happy feeling, perhaps, you know, a bit like people finding, you know, having a swim again or getting on a bike. I think it's just like, but it's like, but this time I'm just going to have a nice time playing music. I'm not got, yeah. I'm not going to get it. It's not going to get carried away. I'm not going to start taking lines of, lines of cocaine and speed and buying, you know, Jack Daniels at the local supermarket. I'm just going to enjoy. Well, not, not, not before dinner time anyway. Now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. And your mind uh, and body, it survived. Yes. I think that does show the resilience of the human form, definitely. I think it's the mind uh, more so than, than the body that you need to, to keep your eye on. Yes. And for most people, certainly meditation would be a, a way of <laughs> restoring that imbalance, certainly. Yes, I would imagine a, a clean diet. <laughs> and totally just... clean diet, totally clean. I am I'm totally clean 30-odd years. Now, even after after the after head of David, and that's that's it. The best part of thirty years. But I did an interview with is it Barney from Mo, um, Napalm Death. Napalm Death, yeah. And he and I mean they're they're all very vegetarian health mm-hmm. healthy, aren't they? So you know, yeah. there, is, there is something. Well, about... I've, it, I've, I mean, I've I've been a vegetarian since those days as well, since the early eighties, and it was all part of the the animal rights movement way back in those days. More people are vegan now. I was vegan for a while, but it wasn't quite as easy as it, it is now to be vegan, not catered for so well. But I think it's really good. I think it's really good that people are thinking about these things, being mindful of, of what they eat and how yes. they live. Napalm death, napalm death were never um, extreme people. They were more straight edge. Yes. So usually find that the bands who were the most extreme are actually the saner people. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It is, it is strange, but it's true. Yes. Even the butthole surfers. <laughs> My God, the buttholes. Did you ever get round to see what um, any of their homes were like? No, not buttholes. Um, but I almost died in Steve Albini's bed, but I, I didn't, didn't see the buttholes, no. Spent time with the buttholes in in Austin, but never went to their homes. But Gibby, Gibby, when he's not on stage, he's, he's very sound-minded, he's a very intelligent man, yes. as they all are, as they all are. I mean, it's just, it's just a live um, setting that turns people into something else, and that's, that's the way it should be, I guess. Yes, and obviously the, the famous Steve Albini, who we... Or loved, and he's still doing it, and he loves cats apparently. So he, he does love cats, which is he's, good. He's a good man. He he's probably out of all the people I met, and I met a lot of people. I'd say Albini, possibly possibly my favourite of all the people I met because he he had no no frills. When when we asked him to remix Dust Bowl, um. He said, "What? Why?" He said, "It's a perfectly good album, and he, but we wanted him to rough it up, and which he did a little bit. Uh, but he's a, he's a top man, and he used to go on really well with my mom. <laughs> Remarkably, <laughs> he was just very normal. He was just very normal. Yes, well, again, that's... quite an extreme character in the public eye. But he's a very sincere chap. He was, he was a prankster. He was a, a wind-up merchant, but he was totally normal." All Big Black were, all, all three of Big Black were, were, were really nice, nice people. Excellent. Well, that's good. I'm pleased to hear that. But look, this has been fantastic. 
um, Stephen. That has been. I, I apologise for waffling on, by the no, way. No, no, it's good. It's good. I'm just, you know, it's it's just been brilliant to catch up. And and you know, to be honest, you know, you were a huge part of the soundtrack to my '80s and and a bit of the '90s, but definitely the '80s with John. Well, you Peele. sound all right now. Yes, well, I'm I'm still there. I'm, you know, a bit like bit bit like most people. You know, one start has a few hiccups with health, which kind of give you a bit of a wake up, and then you have to get a bit serious. This is it. This is it. Old age, sickness, and death. This is what you got to think about when you're sitting on that cushion. Yes, and keep it focused. Keep it focused, and and I think just being kind to yourself and others—that's the key. Importantly, start with yourself. Definitely. Yes. You can't be kind to others if you're not kind to yourself, definitely. Yes, this is true. I agree. This is excellent. Look, it's getting dark. and um, But look, this has been amazing. So what I'll do, when I put this out, I'll, um, I'll send you a link and you'll probably see it on the great Facebook. And um, yes, this has been fantastic. I, w- I will, I will publicise it, of course. Yeah, well, thank you ever so much. I really appreciate it. And David, it's been really good to speaking to you yes well thank you and you're you know thank you for ever so much for your time and um it's a pleasure have a lovely evening and take and care yourself. okay see you later all bye. the best to you david bye 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 and that as you gather was us saying goodbye and um that was me in conversation with the head of david's Stephen R. Burroughs to find out more about life in the band and much much more if you want to contact me for any reason, well, not any, obviously, um, for a nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, go to at C86show. And also all these shows have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Indeed, you can. Anyway, stay safe. Have a great week. <laughs>